Before we get started with this episode, it's time we start getting real with you. Our podcast stats show that there's over 30,000 of you listening to every episode. And that sounds great and all, but we still aren't covering our expenses for the show, which is obviously unsustainable. So instead of flooding the podcast with more and more sponsors to cover our costs, we're instead asking for your financial support via Patreon. You can help keep us on the air. And by contributing, you'll get some cool perks as well. See, we have three different membership levels on Patreon. We got the bronze, silver, and gold. And for each level, you get a different perk. For example, one of our perks for being a silver member is that you'll be listed in our future episode notes, which will make it easier for you to connect with other smart businessmen and women who listen to this very podcast. And for those of you that own your own business, the gold membership level is a steal. And if you want to find out more about these different levels and tiers, then just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon, or scroll down to the bottom of the episode show notes right now to sign up. After we get our first 10 Patreon contributors for each level, we will be raising the price of membership. So this is a limited time offer. So again, if you want to get in on our kickoff sale for being a bronze, silver, or gold member, then go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon, or just scroll down to the bottom of your episode notes right now to sign up. And thank you all for listening and supporting the show. We really do appreciate it and want to keep bringing you future episodes. So if you have the financial means to help support us, we'd really appreciate it. Never let you get lost again, cried the little boy, who was so happy that he gave Happy a kiss on his wet little puppy nose. The end. Whoa, 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 Miss Lippy. The part of the story I don't like is that the little boy gave up looking for Happy after an hour. He didn't put posters up or anything. He just sat on the porch like a goon and waited. That little boy's got to think, you got a pet. You got a responsibility. If your dog is lost, you don't look for an hour and then call it quits. You get your ass out there and you find that f***ing dog. I think it's time to play. It was extremely difficult. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. You know, we had to say goodbye to 250 employees and had such a great thing going. I had brought two of my brothers in to help me run the business and they were owners as well. And 20 years ago, I started with nothing. I had no money, I had no real connections, no expertise and no experience. Now I have all that. And so I'm stepping back and saying, if I had it to do over, what would I do? My name is Steve Brenneman. I live in Goshen, Indiana, which is in the northern part of the state, up close to the Michigan line. I grew up just across the line in Michigan a little town called Dwajak. My business is in Napanee, which is down in the southern part of Elkhart County. And there's a lot of Amish people there. It's a town, about 5,000 population, but it's been a great place to have a business. Yeah. Are you Amish? No, I am Mennonite. I grew up with some Amish relatives, but yeah, I grew up Mennonite, went to Mennonite college and we attend a Mennonite church. Since you kind of grew up that way, let's talk about that for a minute. But first, why don't you introduce us to your company a little bit, and then we'll reel back when you were growing up there. Yeah, sure. Oh, and I'm 46 years old. Yeah. Forgot that. All good. My company, we build mostly all aluminum specialty trailers, cargo trailers, car haulers, race haulers, 
commercial trailers, kitchen trailers, just about anything that you want to make mobile, we can do it. We don't do motorized and we don't do the big semi-trailers, mostly light duty stuff, although we build 53-footers, triaxles, and we build big stuff, but just not the heavy over-the-road kind of stuff. And what's your company name? The name is the Aluminum Trailer Company. We're known as right now is ATC Trailers. And I remember when we were talking, I was doing some searching on the internet. Even when I just Googled Aluminum Trailers, y'all are the first one. Yeah. I'm in Florida and you're in Indiana, right? <laughs> yeah, we've developed a pretty good following and brand, and that's definitely part of the story. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your company? Like how big is it? Yeah. Employees, revenue, and just give us a little bit of that. Yeah, we'll be about 65 million this year. We have about 300 employees. We've been in business for almost 20 years. We're just about 19 and a half coming up on our 20 year anniversary in September. It's been a good business for us. It's been good most of the time. It is very challenging these days because we make consumer products, combination of consumer products, but also commercial products. And we do some work for the government as well. It becomes a challenge to figure out who our customers are and really make what they want us to make without making every single trailer custom. Right. Because that's usually where you'll lose money if you start getting more in the custom stuff, right? Yeah. We do custom stuff. That's definitely about 25% of our business is the heavy custom, but we have to do it very carefully and we have to know what we're doing. I would say we have to charge a lot for it because building one trailer at a time, the amount of engineering that goes into a product like that, a $50,000 custom trailer, there's far more work getting the trailer documents ready to build than there is actually out on the factory floor. So we've gotten pretty good at that. We still do it, but where we've really grown is taking what we used to call custom and making it configurable, making it something we can do much more quickly for larger groups of customers rather than one-on-one -on -one hand sold. And how many employees did you say? We have 300. Wow, congratulations. I had no idea that you were this size when you started saying the revenue and the amount of employees. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd get to this size? No, not when I started. It wasn't really on my mind. When you're getting started, it's all about survival. Unless you've done it before and if you've built a business before, you can kind of do it again and have some of those things in mind. But I didn't have any money. I kind of started on a shoestring. So therefore, it's all about survival and you don't really think about having a $60 million company. Yeah, I guess it's just kind of surviving year to year mm -hmm. is what you're focused on. And I think that's what a lot of people listening are kind of at at that point is yeah. those early years trying to, you're not focused on 10 years down the line. You're more focused <laughs> on the next year, two years, maybe next six months or months. Exactly. Okay. So I think we got a good understanding about your company. So do you want to reel it back to growing up? Because you were saying you're a Mennonite. Do you want to yeah. describe that a little bit more for people who don't understand that? Yeah, sure. Mennonites and Amish and brethren, we all come from a group called the Anabaptist that separated from the state church in Europe back in the 1500s, 1600s, and we were persecuted for it. Our ancestors called into question infant baptism. We rebaptized adults, and that was considered heresy. So we were persecuted for it, and we were also pacifists, which also caused a lot of problems in that day as well. So my great-great-grandfather, about seven greats, Melchior Brenneman, was imprisoned in a tower in Switzerland and ended up being there for about four months and escaped. And his children ended up coming to the United States to experience religious freedom and worked out well for them. 
Mennonites and Amish split soon after in the 1500s over some theological differences. We have the same roots, but the Amish stayed much more plain. Most of them don't drive cars. They don't have electricity in their homes. They stay in very close, tight-knit communities. And Mennonites have the whole range of similar theology, but conservative to liberal in their theology. So most Mennonites these days really don't look any different from normal people. My grandmothers wore head coverings and always wore dresses and never cut their hair and things like that. That was part of the conservative Mennonite faith. And when I went to college at a Mennonite college, I became a little bit more liberal in my thinking. We attend a progressive Mennonite church today. Good thing you didn't grow Amish or else you want to be making trailers today, right? Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> you can't have electricity. It'd be kind of difficult to weld trailers together. Yeah. Right. Or I guess you'd be doing wooden trailers, perhaps? Well, actually, there are a lot of Amish people now that have small manufacturing companies and do pretty well. They've been able to use generators. Some of them do have modern electricity in their facilities. It kind of depends on their district and how their community decides to make decisions around some of those things. But I have quite a few Amish workers that work for me. They were instrumental in helping me succeed. Fantastic workers, an amazing group of people. And the Amish in this community have been a real backbone for the recreational vehicle industry and trailer industry and manufactured housing industry in this area. It's huge. Most people don't know this, but our county here produces about 85% of all North American recreational vehicles. It's a staggering amount. It's about a $20 billion industry this year, and they're all 85% of them are made here in this county. Yeah, that is pretty staggering. So where you're located today, it's kind of just in between Chicago and Detroit right? Just North Indianapolis. So people have their visualized. Yep. Correct. We're one county over from South Bend. So you went to Eastern Mennonite University? Eastern Mennonite. Yep. Okay. And then from there, that's when you started your trailer company? I came back to this area because of the manufacturing that was going on. There were a lot of good jobs and I worked in a couple different industries for a couple of years, bounced around and then ended up at my friend who I grew up with from church, ended up doing purchasing for his cargo trailer company started there in about 95. It was a growing business. The cargo trailer market was exploding. These cargo trailers were similar to what we build today, and there's still people building a lot of them, but they're steel frame. So on the outside, they have, if you've ever seen a cargo trailer, they have painted aluminum sheet, but then the skeleton is made out of steel tubing, and they paint it black or they undercoat it to try to keep it from rusting, and the paint and finishes on it really just are not adequate to withstand the salt on the roads and all the corrosion that happens. I was doing purchasing for my friend's company, and they were growing quickly. And Why was it growing so quickly? Do you know? Because this is the mid-1990s? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, in the late 80s, there was really only a couple trailer builders, Wells Cargo. They kind of made these small cargo trailers. And I think my theory would be that when pickup trucks became much more popular and people had more toys and more things to transport, people started wanting more and more trailers. So then all of these companies here locally sprang out of Wells Cargo, Hallmark and Pace and then eventually Forest River, and some of those really grew out of the need that kind of exploded around the country. The numbers got quite large. There was several nationwide companies building $100 million or more worth of these cargo trailers. Okay. So you're working for your friend's company. It's kind of exploding in the mid-90s. Then you decided it's time to start your own trailer company, or how'd that happen? 
I was kind of the first non-family member to work at this company in the office and I was doing okay. I wouldn't say that I was a fantastic purchasing agent. <laughs> I was more of a thinker, more of an entrepreneur and didn't know it yet. But a couple of my suppliers that supplied me with aluminum that I bought aluminum for the trailer company from approached me and said, hey, we see some potential in you and asked if I would be interested in starting a business with them. And I thought, you know, I was like 25 years old. I thought, wow, I hadn't really thought of it before. I don't have any money. So I hadn't really thought of starting my own business. But I guess if these guys are willing to take a risk on me, why wouldn't I? I wouldn't say that I was extremely frustrated with my position. I was making good money and they were treating me well, but I quickly saw that I probably wasn't going to be part of the family business because I wasn't part of the family. Yeah, you're the only person, so that makes it hard, yeah. hard to be the part of the family business. So I learned a lot. And then when these guys approached me, I looked at several different things I could do. I looked at some manufacturing companies. I looked at manufacturing processes. I presented a couple ideas to them and the several ideas that I came up with would have required a lot of capital. They saw something in me, but they didn't see that much in me. I mean, they weren't really willing to risk a million bucks or anything like that, which I can't blame them. I didn't really have a track record to prove what my abilities were. But over about a year period, I started looking at different things. Finally, the one gentleman said, we've got several customers that are building these enclosed all aluminum snowmobile trailers. They're all aluminum frame. And the reason that people are buying these more expensive aluminum frame trailers is because you know, they're traveling on the salt roads, they're pulling them with smaller pickup trucks, and they're loading them with four snowmobiles and heading north to where the snow is up in the Upper Peninsula or up in Canada. There's a lot of people building a lot of these. And I just did not want to build trailers. I didn't love the business. I wasn't interested in trailers. I'm not a car guy. I'm not a motorsports guy. Finally, he talked me into it. He said, look, we have all the materials for these. All you'd have to do is buy some axles and some wood for the flooring and walls. And we pretty much have everything else. I said, well, okay, if that's the best thing to do, let's do it. So in the spring of 99, I started putting these prototypes together of snowmobile trailers. And I'm not handy at all. I'm terrible with chop saws and screw guns and all the things that it takes to make these. So I was trying to help where I could. I was doing the sales, you know, after hours and trying to connect with some dealers that were selling these and wasn't really competing with my current employer because they didn't make these, but got a few sold, a few of the prototypes we made, got them sold and got a couple dealers to commit to a few trailers. In the meantime, I went down to Napanee at the time, we were up in Elkhart, which is kind of in the center of the county. I had hired some of the guys that I had worked with at my cargo trailer company that I was working at. I'd hired them to work after hours and put these together. So that was working okay. But I needed some doors for my trailers because there's side doors and went down to Napanee to an Amish farm, bought some doors from an Amish guy that had this door business. And I had been buying some stuff from him for the company that I was working for. And we struck up a conversation and he said, well, I've got this business that I'm trying to sell. I really need to sell it. It's getting too big for my farm. I'm having some health problems related to stress, but I can't find anybody that wants to buy my business. So I said, well, I don't have any money, but I could probably help you get it moved off your farm. And maybe over time, I can earn the business and work for you, do your purchasing for you, because I knew all the materials, similar materials as the ones that went into the trailers that we were building. And said, I could help you with that, take some of the stress off. And then because I'm not Amish, I can take this business and move it into a more modern building. He said, great, let's do it. 
my plan was, because I knew I wouldn't be able to get a paycheck from my trailer company for a while when I started it, my wife actually came up with the idea, well, why don't you work for the door company for this Amish guy till noon and then go and work at your trailer company in the afternoon? Get somebody to help you answer phones and hire your guys in the plant, but they can make the trailers without you. So that's what we decided to do. I had these guys that were supplying me all the materials, but I really didn't have capital. I really didn't have a plan as to how to get capital. All I did was basically say, I know the business a little bit. All of the vendors liked me. I had good relationships with all my vendors and they were willing to give me terms, 30-day terms. The trailer business is one that's COD. So if you buy a trailer from me and you're a dealer and you come pick it up, you have to pay before you can leave with it. My vendors that sold me all the materials were willing to give me 30 and sometimes 45 days to pay for the stuff. So I thought, well, I can use that extra 30 to 45 days to fund the business. And that's what we did. I wouldn't recommend that. It's extremely stressful, yet somehow we did it. We really only put about $45,000 worth of capital in the business to get it up and going. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and I was delaying it for whatever reason. And the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it, and, uh, and that's it. So I'm very happy with it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back? It was just uh, taking the time to do it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located? Here in Bolivia, in South America. Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions and I'm just there to facilitate it. Hopefully that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it, we talk and something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. It's kind of funny because it seems like even when your story starting off, I mean, most entrepreneurs, they're like stoked to start their own business. But then at first you were like saying you didn't want to necessarily be in the trailer business, but you were doing it because that's what you knew, right? Yeah, it was really strange. And even to this day, I'm not a huge car guy. I'm not a motorsports person. I'm not into racing. A lot of my customers, I don't really relate to that well. I love our products. I think they're fantastic. And I love our customers. I love the social aspect of it. But going out and the things we do on the weekends, I don't have a lot in common with them. It's been kind of strange, but I love manufacturing and I love business as an entrepreneur. Yeah, because we can all find parts of a business that you like, even if you aren't necessarily 100% totally stoked about trailers, there's parts of the business that yeah. you do like that were interesting. Correct. Which is pretty cool. But what did those guys see in you when you said you're at the other company? Because you said you weren't necessarily the best <laughs> purchasing agent, but they saw some type of potential in you, you said. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I haven't really thought of it in that detailed way before. I think maybe I was able to articulate some of the things that were going on in the current business that I was working in. I saw some of how the family was managing the business, and I was able to articulate to them some of the things that I saw that I would do differently if I had a business. 
And they knew I had good people skills and I was honest and some of those qualities. So I guess those would be the things that I'm aware of. You said this first year, it sounded like you're, are you working basically three jobs? Because are you at the other family company too? Or did you totally quit that after a little bit of time? No, when I started the business on September 7th, 1999, I quit the trailer job that I was working at. I took a little bit of a pay cut. The Amish was paying me about $500 a week to do that work. And then I didn't take a paycheck at my trailer company. And I hired a guy from my church. He put a little bit of money in, like 10 grand, and joined me at the trailer company. And he was kind of there every day. He was doing the sales. And then I would come in the afternoon, usually by about one o'clock, and we would work till five or six and then go home and do it all over again the next day. I would get to the door business around six o'clock, help load the trailer, work till noon, drive up to Elkhart, and then work till about six o'clock in the evening at my trailer business. You were in your mid-20s, right? Yeah, I was 27. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off there. Well, the one thing that I always remember that worked really well in those days, it was extremely stressful. And part of the stress was I didn't capitalize the business properly and I didn't have a strong business plan so that I could handle some of the adversity that got thrown at me in the beginning. There's a lot of business books out there on resilience. And I would say that's a characteristic that is really one that entrepreneurs have to have. You come up against these obstacles. I'll give you an example. In the beginning days, we did not have a lot of money in the checking account. We were basically using the 30 and 45 days their suppliers gave us to pay for materials. And a lot of times we'd stretch that out as far as we could. And then our axle supplier would call and say, hey, we're going to deliver tomorrow, but we need to pick up a check for $12,000 or we can't deliver. Okay, no problem. We'll give it to you. Well, a lot of times we would write that check without having the funds to back it up. But we had a unit coming off the line. We had another one going to come off in two days. And all we had to do is make sure that that schedule happened and we could cover the checks we wrote. So one time we worked with a national bank and I'm glad we did because that allowed us to put, at the time when you put funds in an ATM, those funds were available almost immediately. So we were able to deliver a trailer to a dealer, find an ATM from that bank in the nearest vicinity and drive 70 miles an hour to that ATM, put it in, and overnight the check would clear and we would have access to the funds the next morning. That is literally what happened many, many times. And it allowed us to time the trailers coming off with when we needed those funds available. It allowed us to basically fund the company. And one time my partner was going to deliver a trailer to Florida. He was going to personally deliver it to the dealer and hopefully come back with a few more orders. And on top of that, we needed those funds available the next day. We had to have them. So his father was going with him to Florida, ride along, and then they were going to play golf that afternoon after dropping the trailer off. And they got down there and they were a little bit late. They ended up getting the check and they were going to have to drive three hours to the other side of the state because there was no ATMs on that side of Florida. And <laughs> his father just said, no, we're going to play golf today. I will have my wife put funds in your bank account and you can pay me back tomorrow. So it saved them a three hour trip across Florida. <laughs> it's like, 15 grand or something like that. Luckily, his father had the funds to do that. But that gives you an example of what kind of shoestring we built the business on in the beginning days. 
And yeah, and I can imagine that stress because it was just enough to float it, but not enough where you're within like 24 hours of not being able to clear stuff. Oh, yeah. Definitely understand that. Yeah. So that worked really well almost every time. We did bounce a few payroll checks, which are a couple of our Amish employees were really upset about. I just apologized and tried to take responsibility and try to make sure it didn't happen again. We weren't without our snafus. You know, one time, if a driver would take a trailer to a faraway state, sometimes we weren't able to get to an ATM. So they would FedEx the check back to us. So we'd have it the next morning. And FedEx lost the check one time in Nashville. And we ended up (laughs) really, really upsetting some of our vendors who their checks bounced. But it was really only one time that it got really bad. The rest of the time we were able to manage it. Our first controller that we hired, his almost full-time job was just deciding what vendors to pay and when to pay them and how to beg for materials on the telephone. How long did this go on? Was this first couple of years or longer than that? Yeah, it was really tight the first three years. Yeah. And we weren't real profitable in the beginning. We kind of just did things on a shoestring. We had an incredible workforce. Back in the beginning, I'll kind of tell you the sales history. We started building these snowmobile trailers. And pretty quickly, as we were building these snowmobile trailers, I thought, why couldn't we build car haulers out of this aluminum frame? People want smaller, lighter trailers, maybe not smaller, but they want lighter weight trailers. They want to be able to pull them with smaller pickups. And you really want to be able to put more in a trailer. You don't want the trailer itself to weigh a lot. So we built a prototype of a car hauler. And I knew that when I looked at the marketplace, everything was a steel frame, except for Featherlight. Featherlight out in Iowa made a lot of horse trailers out of aluminum, and they made an all-aluminum car hauler. And the only problem was it was really expensive. So if you looked at a Hallmark trailer, you could buy a 24-foot car hauler for five grand from a dealer. If you looked at a Featherlight trailer, that same size trailer cost 12 to 15 grand. And that was a huge jump. But I knew enough about materials. I did the calculation, did the bill of material. And the comparison was if I took a Hallmark trailer and did the exact same materials except for the frame and made the frame out of aluminum, the cost was only $750 difference. What I thought was, well, maybe pay a lot of the bulk of the market would not pay $12,000 for a car hauler, but they might pay $6,500. And so that's really the premise that we built our company on. We sort of, started making these all aluminum car haulers and taking them to dealers and saying, hey, look at how nice this is. It's all aluminum. It's lightweight. It's going to last forever. And dealer after dealer said, wow, that's really nice. I like it. The fit and finish is great. You know, maybe I could sell one a year, but it's just too expensive. People in my area, maybe up by you, it's different, but people in my area are too concerned about price. No one's asking for an aluminum trailer and even $1,500 difference is too big a difference. And there was something inside of me that said, that's not true. I know that's not true. Just thinking about the economics of it, if you bought a trailer that was going to last 20 years and then bought a trailer that was heavier and going to rust in six months, for $1,500, especially when you have a $75,000 race car, you're going to pay the $6,500. I just, I mean, it was obvious. So we started a website. And I know that sounds ridiculously obvious. In 2000, there were no trailer websites. I mean, none of the manufacturers, no matter how big they were, had websites. None of the dealers had websites. None of the manufacturers had websites. We created a website. 
And then we linked it to not Google because Google wasn't around yet. <laughs> I mean, they were just getting started. Right. We got hooked up with MSN, Search, and Yahoo. And quickly, we started getting phone calls from people that saw our stuff online and said, absolutely, I want an aluminum trailer. I've had four Hallmarks or Paces or whatever the brand was, and I want something that's going to last. And so we started increasing our prices a little bit, and we started making nicer stuff. So that's sort of when we had three Amish guys that were tired of the RV scene and came over to work for us rather than the other place in Napanee that they were working in. Oh, by the way, we had moved the business to Napanee and it was functioning alongside my door business that I was working in and starting to buy. So we had a fairly large facility that we financed with a SBA loan, Small Business Administration loan. And we bought this 80,000 square foot building for $500,000. Half of it, we had our door business and the other half, we had our trailer business, two separate companies. How do you afford the half a million dollar thing? Because didn't you say money was tight? Money was very tight. But with an SBA loan, the government backs a good portion of the loan. If you're up and going at all and you show any kind of cash flow, even if you're not extremely profitable and you don't have a lot of assets to back it, you can use the building to as collateral because the SBA is basically providing a guarantee for about 40% of the product, depending on what SBA loan you get. So that's how I was able to buy a half million dollar building. Okay. Yeah. Cause they will finance up depending on the SBA loan, but even up to like 90% or plus where you end up. Yes. Okay. So that's how you're able to was with that SBA loan yep. that most people might be like thinking of LTV when you're buying a house, but with SBA loan, you can get much higher. So you're able to buy something like that. Correct. Okay. Now, the local banks that facilitate the SBA loans, they're not just going to write terrible loans. They want to maintain their reputation with the SBA. So, you know, there is some due diligence and you do need to show some business acumen, but they're much more lenient. We never would have gotten a loan without the SBA. And you're saying you basically started middle of September 1999, this trailer company. and. Mm -hmm. Within a year is when you kind of brainstorm about making this new type of trailer that was a fraction of the cost of the ones that you were comparing them to? Yeah, it was actually sooner than that because we started in September and the snowmobile trailer season really ends in February. Mm -hmm. So we had to have a product that we could build during the summer. We built our first car hauler about three months into the business. Right. And when you were building that, and then you came up with the website, like right after that or right before? Yeah, it was about six months in. So I'm thinking in February, March of 2000, we started the website and it wasn't really functional until the following year. It took us a while to really get linked with the search engines. So yeah, even within basically six months of you starting the company, you had come up with these two things that seems like it would change your business big time versus if you were just making the same type of trailers as before. Yeah, it really put us on the map because otherwise we'd have just been a me too for these snowmobile trailers. So the concept of making the new trailer and then also realizing getting on the internet, tell us about that because a lot of us can't imagine. You were saying it's hard to imagine that there weren't any websites there, but there weren't. So just tell us how you thought about that and then what'd you do to get yourself listed or did you have help? Because again, this seems like one of the game changers for you as far as making a successful business. Well, it's part of that resilience. When you hit a brick wall and you take my partner took this car hauler that we had built and started going across the country and visiting dealers with it, and he just got no after no after no, 
it was basically we had to do something to survive. And you hit that brick wall and you just say, okay, what are our options? Well, you know, we knew that the internet was starting to grow. We started looking around and thought, well, we could do this. You can be just a two-person operation, but on your website, it can look like you're a established trailer builders. We knew we could project the image that we wanted to it really didn't take much because there was no competition. Anybody going online and typing in car trailer would come up with us. And because we were the aluminum trailer, our website to this day is aluminumtrailer.com. And it's just because no one else was paying any attention to it. So we got some pretty valuable domain names just because no one was paying any attention. You said that these people, after you launched the website and finally got the SEO kind of kick in, that's when all these all sales and orders started coming in? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was a flood, but you know, we started getting calls and somebody would say, wow, this is really great. And we'd walk them through the sales process and decide what trailer would look like. And we'd give them a quote and they would wire us $15,000 with no real reference check or anything. It was just yeah. a website and a phone call and they would wire us $15,000. That was shocking to us and that led to more activity and we started really working with making sure that we stayed at the top of the search engines and some of those things. But fairly soon after that, within a couple of years, we kind of saw that selling direct to the public was not exactly what we wanted to do. There was this established dealer body out there that sold trailers, that sold RVs. And we really thought, let's let them do the public facing work and let's be a manufacturer. Well, one second, if you don't mind, because I think this is really important. Some people might not understand the difficulties with like dealing with the customers or yeah. whatever. So tell us why you didn't want to deal with that. Because I can understand because my brother has a similar business where he has part of it that they deal with the consumers that he's gotten tired of dealing mm -hmm. with. And then now he's doing more of the business to business stuff. But yeah, you tell us why you wanted to kind of stop doing dealing with consumers one on one. Yeah, I mean, there's part of it was location. People that bought trailers would use them and then they needed a wheel service or they needed bearings, they needed these upkeep of service. So that was part of it. We needed representation in the region of sales for those kinds of things. People wanted to go look at one and maybe buy it out of stock rather than ordering one online. Most people were fine with ordering one and waiting eight weeks to get it, but some people just want to buy one on the spot. And that also expanded our sales capability when we had 15 dealers out there all trying to sell our products to customers who really duplicated the efforts that we had. You know, we kind of waffled back and forth. We did sell direct to corporations for a while and still sell a little bit to large corporations today. We're very protective of our dealer base, but we do sell very few units direct corporations who just aren't going to buy from a dealer, but 95 to 98% of what we do is through a dealer base. And particularly, was it difficult dealing with those consumers who were coming to you as well? It seemed like there would just be some headaches versus if you're dealing with the dealer, it's just very simple versus someone contacting you through. Yes, there definitely that buffer that the dealers provided is definitely helps us focus on becoming really good quality manufacturers. So yeah, that most customers are great, but the few that aren't, it can be a real challenge to work through problems. And it just gives us that extra buffer and also having that representation in the region of sales really important as well. It seems like after a couple of years, you're able to build a good sized company. Do you want to give us like how many people might be working for you or how much you might've been doing in revenue? 
Sure. We grew it pretty quickly. Now, keep in mind, at the time, I was running the door business. I had bought the door business about two years in, and someone else was running the trailer business for me. And I was on the other side of the wall at the building running the door business. And I was growing that very quickly. But at the trailer business, by 2006, we had gotten a large contract with a oil exploration company out west. In 2006, we did $26 million in sales and had about 170 employees. So we had grown it pretty quickly. And I would say because of our strong, very talented, quality-minded workforce that we had, we didn't have to get all the details right. Basically, we took an order. We had a really good quoting machine that worked well for us that dealers could use to quote trailers in the field and then send us the quote. They could email the quote. We made it really easy and simple to build a quote for the customer and email it and show it to them. And that really allowed us to continue to grow quickly, even for some of the more complex stuff. So that was all happening. And then that sort of created a really nice marketplace for our product. So I would say in a lot of ways, we sort of created the aluminum trailer market that we have today. Before us, there really wasn't a large specialty trailer market out there for all aluminum frame trailers. And today, there are much aluminum frame trailers are a much larger portion of that specialty trailer market because of some of the things we did. And how long did it take you to get profitable? Oh, boy, that's a good question. <laughs> we had our ups and downs, and I would say we were never really profitable through that build up to 2006. And in 2007, we realized or we found out that the contract with the oil company that we had gotten was going to end and we were going to need to replace that business with something else if we wanted to stay that same size. At the end of 2006, we brought in a person to run the business and he had a finance and accounting background and he was really good at understanding what it took to be profitable on the expense side. It was good timing because that was about when the downturn started for us. We lost the large contract. It ended in 2007 and then 2008 hit and we had to really shrink the business and do a lot of layoffs and stay ahead of it. And the guy that was running the business was phenomenal at that. He just stayed ahead every step of the way. So actually in 2008, we actually made a decent profit, even though we had shrunk to about 15 million in sales from 26 because of the guy that was running the business while staying solvent. How about the seven years beforehand when you had gotten so big? Like it seems like were you working crazy hours when you're between the door company and the aluminum trailer company? I was not. I wouldn't describe myself as a business operator necessarily. I mean, I can do it, but I'm more the entrepreneur. So I was very protective of my time. I took vacations with my family. I kept very flexible hours. I was there, but I wouldn't say that I put in 12 hours a day like a lot of entrepreneurs talk about. There were times I did that, but in very short bursts. When we had putting in a new computer system, I would always go home for dinner. I was always at the dinner table with my family every night. But then sometimes after the kids went to bed, I would go back and work all night. I didn't do that very often, but maybe five or six times over the years when stuff had to get done. So yeah, that was definitely a challenge, but I was never a workaholic that had to put in tons of hours. I think that's what all of us strive for is to own a business where you have the opportunity to do whatever you want. Yeah. 
It was good that you're able to do that while you were still younger and growing the business. What usually seems to happen is that a lot of people like kind of take the sacrifice, whether they have kids or not yeah. at that point in time or single or not single, then they put in the more hours and kind of in the beginning, but that you're able to maintain that throughout. But how about those first seven years? I mean, to me, it feel great that you're like have that many jobs and you have that much in sales, but then were you taking a decent salary for yourself? Because it'd be frustrating to me that you weren't like this quote unquote, like yeah. profitable, even though you're growing that big up to that point. Yeah, we were profitable enough to continue to move forward. We had good cash flow, again, because we had terms with our vendors and we got COD for everything we built. That really helped us fund the growth. At the time, through those seven years, about three years in, I started taking a small salary from the trailer company and I was upping my salary at the door company. So about four years in, I started paying myself well at both places. So that definitely helped a lot. But you weren't ever worried that it was going to go away because it just seemed like everything kept growing up to that point? No, everything was growing phenomenally. You know, in my door business after 9-11, we really thought no one was going to buy RVs and trailers anymore. And my door business, we had diversified and started building doors for RVs. We thought we were in real trouble. And for a couple months, it was slow. But people decided to stay closer to home and do a lot more camping. And so the RV business really took off after that. So both businesses were growing dramatically, very quickly. And my door business was profitable and growing. The trailer business was growing profitable enough to seem successful and all led up to the downturn of 2008. What did the guy who came in, like you said, even though the revenues shrunk by almost like 10 million, you were more profitable but than you were before. So that's very cool. I mean, that you're able to like have a guy come in who was able to figure out how to do this and lay off people at the right time. What did he notice that maybe we could learn from yeah. if we need to cut expenses or, you know, maybe we can learn something from it, I imagine, that where he was able to figure out to make your company more profitable, even though you're losing revenues? Yeah, it's... It's, that is a really, really important point. There's a big difference between an entrepreneur and an operator. And it's another transition that I've gone through recently. We can talk about that later, what I'm doing now. But there is a real skill in operating a business profitably. For me, growth was easy. Finding markets was easy. And hiring people was easy. And we had a great culture and we still do today. So sometimes we'd have a group in the office that was working too many hours. We'd just hire people and pile them on top of everybody else. And when that operator came in, you know, he immediately recognized we were just heavy. We just had too many people doing too many things that didn't produce value for the customer. And he really just honed in on the things that created value for the customer. And if you do that, you'll realize Maybe it's only temporary, but there are times where there's a balance between growth and new opportunities, and let's focus on what we do really, really well and hone it into a profit-making machine. And that's not easy to do, but entrepreneurs have a really difficult time operating the business, focusing on what you're really good at and shedding the rest and becoming really profitable. I struggle with that a lot because I'm about growth. I'm about the next new thing. And I've grown both businesses. I grew very quickly because of that, but that doesn't always translate into profit. Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was gonna be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're gonna get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. 
Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. Was there specifically anything that you can think of that we could learn from that he saw? It makes sense what you're saying that maybe he had like 20 different things y'all were working on at the trailer company, but he realized maybe five of them were more profitable. Things were adding value. Is there anything specific that you can remember? Well, one of the things that he did was zero in on some product lines that we were doing big volume in. And he paid more attention to the materials that were going in and what was on the engineering print and what actually got put on the trailer. Rather than just letting it up to the guys in the weld shop to grab the biggest, heaviest aluminum piece they could find and put just to make sure that the trailer was going to last forever. Rather than doing that, let's figure out what was our assumption when we designed this trailer and maybe we're running finite element analysis of it on our computer and in CAD and some of that. And then what did we intend for this trailer to be made of? And then what's actually getting done? And what we found was there was 10 to 15% of aluminum extra in that trailer that we hadn't planned on. That's one example. Another example is we had a marketing department with about five people in it. And we just weren't the size of company that could afford that. And we also didn't necessarily have people with a lot of marketing experience that were really focused on customer value. You know, maybe we were taking pictures for the dealers so that they could put the trailer on their website. You know, there was a lot of stuff to do. People were busy, but we had a lot of folks that in, as the company started shrinking, that just weren't needed anymore. And it was painful. It was hard to lay them off. And I would have had a much more difficult time doing that than he did but he made those steps to keep us viable and to keep us surviving for those that remained at least to make it through the downturn and be profitable. Yeah, I think that's important because we can all be busy. I can be busy on Facebook right now, right? But as I'm actually adding value to my company while I'm doing it, right? Exactly. I could be working on my Facebook page for the podcast, but is that really adding value? Am I going to get customers out of it? Probably not. Maybe I should absolutely focus on something else. So it sounds like those little things and cutting the overhead where you had kept adding people like you were saying, and then looking at those labor costs and making sure you shrunk them. Especially the trailer thing makes sense too. I mean, so would the main thing that you would say is like, make sure you get a good finance guy to help you with this? Seems like that another one of these game changers for you to obviously start making more of a profit with the company. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I've learned over the years is there's a big difference between a controller and a CFO. A CFO is not just a controller who got the promotion. A CFO, a true chief financial officer, not only understands costs and understands pricing and some of those things, a good CFO will add value to the business and create opportunities as well as understanding all the finances that go into it. It is extremely important. And depending on the size of the business, there are people that can function as consultants if you can't afford one. But that financial side is just extremely important. I do some consulting And I had a client that is a very entrepreneurial business. It was a landscaping business. And she was really somewhat profitable, but very erratic profit. And she was struggling to understand how she made money, what she charged, what should she pay her employees, all these things. And I told her, why don't you every month when your books are closed at the end of every month and your accountant is done with that, go sit down and take a couple people with you and sit down with your accountant and have them walk you through the numbers and start to try to understand that. And so she's been doing that. And I think it's been very successful because if you don't have that internal capability within your organization, 
a way to do that in the meantime is whoever's doing your books for you has a good understanding of finance. They may not know your business inside and out, but you can start to learn how the numbers tie together, how the balance sheet and P&L work together, and how does that all work? Because eventually, to have a successful business, the folks at the top really need to have a solid understanding of that. And so maybe that helps in the meantime before people are of a size that they can have a full-time financial manager. That makes 100% sense. And I appreciate that advice, especially for anyone who's yeah. listening, because they have someone doing the bookkeeping or taxes. If you just go to them, they are good with numbers, obviously, for a reason. And they work with different businesses. So they're pretty probably pretty open-minded as far as like trying to help you figure these things out. I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And just doing it every month, each time you're going to run into something a little bit different. You're going to see it from a little different angle. And that's what happens. So, you know, you can't just go online and watch a YouTube video <laughs> on, you know, right. balance sheets or P&Ls and anybody can do that. And that understanding is pretty straightforward. You'll learn that pretty quickly. But it's as my business changes and as we grow or shrink, what are the relationships? What changes? I look at my balance sheet this year. And then a year later, I look at it again. And really, what changed? That's really the success of a business is how your balance sheet changes year to year. And so if you're constantly doing that with a financial advisor, who typically is your accountant, it's really valuable because you get to see as your business grows and changes, you get to see those changes and start to understand that. Well, speaking of changes and looking at the balance sheet, why don't we jump back to 2008 and then talk about your growth from that point in time to today? I mean, I don't know if there's other steps along the way that were major jumps to get you where you are today. No, that's kind of a turning point. 2008 was a turning point. I don't want to get into too much about my other business because that's a whole nother podcast probably. But I was running the door business. We had built a brand new facility, moved the door business out. So the trailer business had the entire facility now in 2008. And we had in 2005, we had built a new facility, moved the door business out. I was running that business. And that business grew even more quickly than the trailer business did. In 2007, we had put in a new piece of equipment that we paid a lot of money for. We had expanded into the West Coast, served the RV business in Southern California. We had five plants. This is just the door business. And so 2007 comes along and we really got rolling. We did 40 million in sales that year, just before the downturn. 2008 hit and our core business, no one was buying RVs. I mean, the RV business went from 360,000 units in 2007 to about 160,000 units in 2008. I mean, it was dramatic. It was two thirds. And we had leveraged heavily to buy some equipment and new plants. And honestly, we just did not have good operational control of the business. Again, back to my entrepreneurial spirit and my creativity and wanting to do this new thing and that new thing and kind of driving folks crazy. And we were growing and we were growing profitably. But as soon as our core business went away, which was doors for travel trailers, we lost that business. And it was the end of 2008. Our bank forced us to shut down. I sold off all the assets and we closed it up. Well, that must have been difficult for you. Yeah, it was extremely difficult. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. You know, we had to say goodbye to 250 employees and had such a great thing going. I had brought two of my brothers in to help me run the business and they were owners as well. And it was extremely heartbreaking and all the families that relied on us for 
paychecks and all of that. Now, if you lose your job, it'd be easy to find a new one. But in 2008, no one was hiring. And so it was a scary time for all of us. Did this affect your trailer business when you had to close down the door business? Not really. They were two separate companies. And like I said before, I had this financial guy running the business and he was phenomenal. He understood banking relationships. He understood the numbers inside and out. He had been in public accounting for 13 years and then had been in other businesses for a while. So he just had a really solid understanding of what needed to happen to help us survive. If we wouldn't have brought him in at the end of 2006, I don't think we'd have made it through. Yeah, we owed a lot to him. So I shut down the door business, sold off all the assets, paid my personal guarantee, which was extremely painful. What was that, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I had a personal guarantee to the bank for the debt of the door business. And I had a couple personal guarantees that I ended up paying over half a million dollars out of my own pocket, took loans out to pay those. And the bank ultimately was not made whole. I mean, they took a pretty big loss, but the personal guarantees kicked in and I had to end up paying a lot of money back. And we considered bankruptcy, but it ended up we were able to maneuver our way through and take out some loans and ended up paying all of our personal guarantees. Yeah. And I think people who are listening, they kind of understand now the difference, at least through some of the episodes, the difference between personal guarantee and a non-personal guarantee, right? So you especially know when something like this happens, like they can go ahead and take back your house and other things, right? Or maybe the business, the other business. So yeah, if you were a hundred percent owner or just depending on what's going on. Yeah, that can happen. And typically they don't, typically they can't touch your place of residence, but any second homes or cars, anything like that, they can take. But the bank that we had worked with was really good. They were fair. They worked well with us. They were a national bank. In the end, even though you know we were forced to shut down, I felt like they were very good to work with. So that was good, but it was very costly. So it took us several years to recover from that. And I would think not even just financially, but like personally, that would take a toll. Absolutely. Because I mean, you're still thankful you have the aluminum trailer business, mm -hmm. but then that's still on your mind, right? Because financially too, if you had to take out loans just to make it somewhat even for the bank, yeah. that's going to take a toll on you. So I mean, personally, was everything still fine? Yeah, personally, I mean, it was extremely painful, obviously, and it was embarrassing. And I felt like I had let everybody down and the suppliers that had supplied us all the materials they didn't get paid. It was millions of dollars that were lost. You know, I felt responsible and I was responsible. Obviously, I wasn't responsible for the downturn, but I was responsible to make sure that I ran the business in a way that we could make it through some things like that. And I just did not have a, a good understanding of risk. I signed personal guarantees left and right because I thought, well, these will never come due. Right. And I thought, you know, well, worst case scenario is X. Well, it ended up being a lot worse than that. Yeah, so, X times five. Yeah, exactly. Like we were saying, the trailer business was still doing okay. So why don't you take us back to, I don't know, 2009, 2010, when that was in the trailer business? We had a good year in 2008, thanks to our shrewd financial manager and a big fat contract that we got at the end of that year. We were able to make it through 2008, making a pretty good profit. And that profit sustained us through 2009. So by 2009, we were down to 10 million in sales. 
We were down to 65 employees. I took a month off with my kids and my wife. We jumped in our little motor home and we went out to the West Coast and traveled up the West Coast and I took a month off. And as I was shutting the door business down in October, before that, I picked up a book called Lean Thinking by Jim Womack and Dan Jones. We had kind of been dabbling with lean manufacturing on the factory floor at my door business for a while. And I didn't think it had anything to do with me as the CEO. I thought, well, that's something for the factory floor. Yeah, eliminate work in process, eliminate waste, be more efficient. Of course, who wouldn't want that? But I didn't think it had anything to do with me. Yeah, I understand it enough to know that I want to bless it. Great. But I didn't really understand it. And I picked up that book as I was going through all these awful things. And it was like medicine. It was like, this is the answer. We can become operationally excellent by using lean manufacturing. That's what you decided to do after you got back from your trip? Yeah, I got back from my trip in February and sort of made a little place for myself in the door business. I let the current CEO still run the business and I decided to plug in on the continuous improvement side and started messing around a little bit with material replenishment systems and putting part numbers on things and really started learning this lean manufacturing technique and went to some conferences and decided that this is what we needed to do. Was this a next step with the business as far as growth or what made it into what it is today? Is this a lean manufacturing idea? Yes. In August of 2009, first of all, we didn't know where the bottom was for my trailer business. In 2009, things were still really tenuous in the economy. And we kept shrinking our production capability. We kept laying people off in the factory because we didn't have enough work for everybody. And Finally, in August of 2009, we noticed that people started buying custom trailers again. In September of 2009, we noticed a real uptick. And on top of that, I had started gaining some traction out in the factory with some lean techniques, and I was starting to get an understanding of it. And I decided that what I felt was happening, the guy that was running the business successfully through the downturn and cutting expenses and things like that was also not changing now to reflect the new reality, which was we started selling trailers again. And we started needing to grow for the first time in three years. And he didn't appear to me that he was able to make that switch to go from pinching pennies and really cutting to growing. So then it was sort of time for my talents to take over and my way of thinking to take over. So I took over the business for him or took over the business from him in late 2009. And we've pretty much grown at 20% a year since 2009. That put us at about 65 million today. Well, obviously this is kind of big to be able to, the guy who had helped you, right? Is this the finance guy? Uh Okay. How'd that conversation go? Because that seems difficult because he kind of helped you, right? Get through those three years. So did he have equity in the business? How did this conversation go to try to switch to growth mindset from the penny pension that actually helped you, I guess, those three years or so? He did not have equity in the business. And I did not handle the conversation very well at all. I was not completely honest with him as I started to see these things happen. I kind of shied away from that conversation. I could have definitely treated him better, but we basically paid him a severance and he found a job probably a lot better than the one we would have had for him. He ended up having a very successful career in a different business and he deserved it. He was extremely talented, but yeah, we separated. Right. Was the conversation just like you saw that there was growth, but he still wanted to keep that from happening? He struggled to connect with our dealer base. He struggled to really put sales systems in place. 
some of those kinds of things. So it was more a conversation. Look, you've done great. You got us through. Thank you. But, you know, Steve's here now and it's really more, you know, his business and it makes more sense for him to run the business. The other managers in the business were also wanting me to take the lead. So it was pretty obvious. Yeah. So that's good. That's an important part that you said there at the end. Yeah. So if the other people working within the business are kind of talking with you and seeing that, I imagine you tried telling the CFO this, but he just still wasn't making the connection that it was time to grow. Yeah. It was more a cultural fit. It was mm -hmm. more the way that he ran the business versus the way that I ran the business. And I was more of a culture builder, more of a type of person that the people that were in the business wanted to follow and they wanted to stay and be a part of if I was running the business. So it was definitely a difference in culture as well. Yeah. Because I imagine there had to be probably not a great culture there for a couple of years if you have to keep cutting no. people. Because so even if you were in that role, like you're saying, maybe the business might not be there for those couple of years, but they needed the guy that you had in place who was absolutely not, who was yeah, fine. If I with, was running the business, we wouldn't have made it through. There's no question. It basically kind of like sounds like he was the hard ass or just like didn't really yeah. care if you had to have exactly. those people cut. But And there's times where that's needed. Absolutely. When you made the switch and it was time for you to come back and focus more on the business and growing culture and stuff, did you come in with the mindset of, okay, watching cost more this time? Or like, what was your mindset difference from the first time you grew it for the first seven or eight years? It was really simple. We wanted to implement lean manufacturing and a lot of the tools that we used to implement lean manufacturing did that for us. It improved our inventory turns pretty dramatically. You know, we had lots of inventory laying around from shrinking in size. We had some extra buildings that we didn't need anymore. We basically closed everything down. We got rid of excess inventory and started using that to fund our growth. And we shrunk our inventory and we cleaned up the plant and started really organizing things. We made it easier for our line workers to do their jobs. All the things that a lean manufacturing transition did for us helped us grow the business and achieve profitability. In 2010, we made a million dollars in profit and went up from there every year. And during that time, did you have anyone else who came in and helped you do this? Because you read a book on it, obviously, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily make you the expert. It's like the main thing is that you have the mindset and that you're trying to right. figure this out. But I didn't know if you brought in somebody else who kind of helped make sure you were doing it right versus y'all just kind of figuring it out as you go. Yeah, we definitely brought in some help. I hired a guy to become COO, director of operations, who had been with me at my door company. And he and I had become students of Lean throughout that two-year period. And we read tons of books. I went to seminars and I invited him into the business to help me from an operation standpoint. And he also had grown up Amish. So he was able to keep the culture intact and really work with our frontline workers to make sure that to try to help with their understanding of what we were trying to do and why. So he was very instrumental in helping me build the business into an operationally excellent company. But then we also brought in some lean consultants as well here and there and used them quite often to help us because I was impatient. I wanted to improve very quickly and I wanted the experts to help us do it so we didn't have to make all the same mistakes. So that was really important to do. And we did that even for a small company. We spent a decent amount of money to make sure that we were building excellence into our processes. Well, you've been saying you've grown 20% ever since? Yes. 20% a year. And we could have grown faster, but 
the kind of the way we looked at it was 20% is about all we can handle while improving the process. Because if we grew faster than that, it's the push and pull between the urgent and the important. You know, our process improvement work was important and that helped us get better tomorrow. The urgent is I got to get this stuff out the door. I don't have time for that continuous improvement crap, you know. Right, right. So we felt like 20%, at least for the type of manufacturing we were doing, that's no hard and fast rule. But we felt like 20% growth was what we could handle while improving the process at the same time. I appreciate you sharing your stories so far and, you know, all the hurdles that you had to overcome. Is there anything else that you could think of that maybe we could learn from? Because it's very cool to kind of learn from that mistake and having to step back a couple of years, having someone who came in and helped you make sure the books were tight and everything, but then you realize it's time for growth and that you've been doing that and it's helped you grow 20% every year. Mm -hmm. But is there anything else that you might want to leave the entrepreneurs who are listening with as far as what they might be able to learn from your story? I would say the most important thing about being an entrepreneur is to figure out what your talents are and figure out what the business needs from you as the entrepreneur. That has been a struggle for me all through my 20 years as an entrepreneur and still is to this day. Just recently, this fall, I was able to bring in a CEO to run my trailer business for me. Over the last two years, I realized that the business really has outgrown my capability as a business operator with 300 employees and three plants and expanding distribution channels and all those kinds of things. I'm more of an operator. And as I mentioned before, I'm less of an operator and more of an entrepreneur. I'm really not the guy that likes to be in it 10 to 12 hours a day making the decisions. I'm really good at bringing in talented people and getting them excited and energized around this idea, but I am not the best, the easiest person to work for and really feel like my strengths are really in more entrepreneurial skills. So a combination of a couple things this fall, a personal issue that I was working through, as well as finding a person that had come in a year earlier in a different role whose pedigree and experience level was way beyond mine and felt like if he could fit our culture and wasn't too corporate, you know, we felt like, I felt like he would be a good person to take over day-to-day operations. And I'm moving back into more of a board leader role and take some time to figure out what my next opportunity is going to be. But recognizing that and realizing that my skill is really something else and not, we don't have to be the hero that does everything for everybody. And we don't have to feel trapped in that CEO role. If we're the founder and there's someone else better to run it and we want the benefits of that, it's okay to say, that's not my strength. You know, being an entrepreneur is a rare thing. And if there's people out there with the experience to run the business better than you, it may seem hard to do, it may seem hard to picture, but I think it's very rare to see a very skilled, creative entrepreneur type that can run a business at all levels, all the way through to that business becoming a billion dollar company or a hundred million dollar company or whatever level you see it becoming. That to me is the biggest challenge as an entrepreneur once you get past that five or 10 year success period. So what do you think personally that you're going to be up to next? Are you uh, brainstorming? You said something about brainstorming it. Is it more within the limited trailer company? Or are you thinking you're going to be doing something else? What's personally there for Steve? No, it'll probably be something else. You know, I, 20 years ago, I started with nothing. I had no money. I had no 
real connections. I had no expertise and no experience. Now I have all that. And so I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store. I'm sort of stepping back and saying, well, what if I had it to do over, what would I do? So I've got some ideas and I'm building some business plans. I'm going to take six to 12 months off because it's been a tough 20 years and the last three have been really challenging as the business has grown past what my experience level is and a lot of relationships in the business. As the business grows, sometimes relationships can stretch a little bit. We've done some things really well. And as a business leader, the things that I've done really well are bringing in good people, creating a strong brand, strong dealer base and an incredible culture, I just have not honed the business into a profit-making machine. And again, back to what does an operator do? A skilled operator hones the business. So that's where I'm at now and looking forward to the future and seeing what happens in the next couple of years. Well, that's awesome. And we appreciate you sharing your story. So sure. is it on the business front or do you want to give us any potential ideas of what you think you're going to be heading next? Oh, yeah. It might be something in the supply base around here. It's a really big market. I've done that before on the door side. I probably won't do doors again, but maybe something on the supply side. It's kind of too early to tell. I don't want to get too married to an idea either because there's a lot of opportunity out there outside of manufacturing in this county. So I want to really take my time and explore what's possible and what's out there. Yeah, I think that's important. That's kind of what I did when I even started the podcast. It took me like probably six months and you'd keep just thinking of different ideas of where you could go. Yeah, exactly. I could do this on, I could do an online business. I could get out of real estate, go into a different type of real estate. Like there's so many options, but I think it's important, like you're saying, especially you have the opportunity now where you're financially yeah. stable and you have the opportunity to try to figure out where you want to go next, not just jumping in something a month after making the decision. Just make sure you weigh your resources and see what might work best. So. Yeah, absolutely. And my company and my partners have been generous with me to give me time. So that's really nice. It's a luxury to have time to make this decision and still be financially okay. And so, yeah, I feel really fortunate. Well, we're fortunate for having you on the podcast. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you. Yeah. Well, if someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview or wanted to seek some guidance from you, what's the best way for them to reach you? My personal email is just my name at Gmail. So Stephen.Brenneman at gmail.com. I do some lean consulting. I don't probably won't make a living at that, but I do some for fun. I've taken our company through about a nine-year lean transformation. And so I've got a lot of knowledge and understanding of that for lots of different businesses. And if you know somebody would like a question answered or maybe they're struggling with some of the same things I was struggling with, shoot me an email and be glad to help if I can. Well, uh, thank you, Steve, for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant. Episode 73 with Steven of Tower Paddleboards. Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great and Beer. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Alijo of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. We'll try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. 
or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing, and episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget we're a virtual family here at Millionaire Interviews. That means you, the listener, the guest, the editors, and the hosts. And so don't forget our... Hell is a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Share the podcast.